day. And his mission then was, how do they live that out in their world, in their behaviors and lifestyles? And yes, that meant rebuilding the wall. It meant rebuilding the city. It meant reinstituting worship and all those decrees and ordinances of God that they somehow had left go down through the years. So I ask you, church, what standard do we measure our success by? It was Dallard Willard that exposed and called out the churches in America by saying most churches' success is ABC. Attendance, buildings, and cash. And how that translates into behaviors then is that most churches do things that draw the most people. And it becomes about the show or the event rather than being about the people who are captured and enslaved behind hell's gates. Rather than the glory of God being exalted, Dallas said it became about us. Now, you heard me say this so many times, but I'm going to say it again. We worship to an audience of? Good. You've been listening. And Jesus told Peter this in Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And then he adds this phrase, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why church? Now we at GBC, for those that are visiting, have been fasting and praying a few weeks ago until Christmas about four specific things. Two questions. One is what is God up to? Where is he leading us? Because we follow him, he doesn't follow us. And then the second question is what's my part in this? Because in the church, he calls us to be and to do his people. Then against two specific things, against enemies. And a lot of those enemies have to do with our own head and heart. You know, where we disqualify ourselves and God says, no, I want to use you. And we say, well, I I can't. But he says, no, you know, set aside the fear, set aside the discouragement. And I want you to engage for my cause. And then secondly, for people who will join us on this cause for the kingdom of God here at GBC. Now, what that does, it puts us in a very dangerous position. Because according to Jesus about the why of the church that he spoke to Peter is that it puts us right in the middle of the crashing hell gates party. Amen. And that's why Paul says things like this. Be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God, because then you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Then he goes and talk about that. We don't wrestle against people. We wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over the present darkness. We wrestle against spiritual forces and evil. And so he says, take up the whole armor of God. Now, when I read passages like that, and I read the passage about what Christ says to Peter, I say to myself, and there's part of me that says this, I don't know if we believe this. When you look at our words and our attitudes and our lifestyles, I have this tendency to think, and this is guilty. I mean, I'm just as guilty of this as I'm saying everybody else is. The church seems to be about comfort and preferences. Not about how do we go on a hell gate crashing party and redeem those in the name of Jesus that are enslaved behind those walls. 
It seems to me the church is about how can I get other Christians to come to my place of worship rather than engaging our world for Christ. Now, Nehemiah calls for a new perspective on what it means to be the people of God. For 120 years, they lived with the city in ruin. They lived not in the power and grace of their God. They lived not in worship to an audience of one. And they settled, they became comfortable, and this was their lifestyle. So Nehemiah shows up and calls for a new perspective of what it means to be the people of God. He calls for renewal. He said, it's time to get serious about obedience and worship. And he calls for a disciplined life. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, listen to these words. It's almost like it was written in Nehemiah's time, so this is something that happens almost every generation. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We don't like those words, do we? Share in suffering. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So what God is calling Nehemiah, what God is calling Israel through Nehemiah was not easy. And this brings us to the next step in God's plan. Now the title of the message is a play on words. The willing unknowns. And when you look at chapter 11, what you realize, here's the issue. They built the wall. They started worship. They signed a covenant that they're going to obey God in all aspects. And we looked at that last week. And Nehemiah says, okay, we need people now to move back into the city. See, the city was in ruin. It became literally a dumping ground for everyone. So it was like a a massive pit of garbage. And everybody built little towns around the city. And so everything to this point, Nehemiah says, okay, I need people to move back. After 160 years, and there was still injustice and poverty, and there was incredible needs. And and what we realize in Nehemiah is that every success is met with 100 more problems. And what we see is people. Some were chosen, and some volunteered. But we don't have their names. They were the willing unknowns. They were the people saying, yes, we're going to follow Jesus. And even though it won't bring us recognition in terms of this list of people, we're going to do right even though nobody else will ever remember our names. So that's why I chose the title, The Willing Unknowns. Secondly, it's for all those people who were either chosen or volunteered to move back into the city. It was a move of faith. They had no idea what that would entail. They didn't know where they're going to live. They didn't know how bad the situation was. They didn't know how they were going to fix these places up. They didn't know what would happen in terms of the enemy outside the city. So they were willing to walk into the unknown. They were willing to take by faith to move into a very uncertain future. Look at Nehemiah 11, and it's mostly a list of names. And I'm going to talk about the ones whose names aren't on that list. So let's look at the first two verses. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. That's the list of names you're going to see follow. And the rest of the people cast lots. You know what casting lot is? 
You ever draw the short straw growing up? Amen. Yeah. Well, here it was. One-tenth of the people were going to cast lots, and if you drew the short straw, you had to move back in. Can you imagine the whole sense of what fair or unfair was in this situation? You know, the nine thought, yeah, it's very fair. The one saying, wait a minute, you know, why am I the one that have to go? But the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in the city in Jerusalem in the holy city. Well, nine out of ten remained in other towns. And then there's a third group of people. You have the leaders that already said, listen, I'm moving in, follow me. You had a second group of people that are chosen by lots. It's called the tithe of the people. That if you drew the short straw or the long straw or however they did it that day, you moved in. You had to be willing. Then there's this last people. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. There's a third group. Those that volunteered saying, listen, we know all the arguments about why it can't be done. We know they're going to be casting lots. We know the leaders moved in. Sign us up. They didn't have to be asked. They didn't go into the lottery system. They volunteered. Now, we could talk about a fourth group, but Nehemiah doesn't refer to those. You know who they were? They were the ones who opposed every move Nehemiah made. And we've been studying about them. They were outside the city. They were inside the city. They were the critics. And it's interesting at this stage, you don't hear Nehemiah talking about them. Why? He said, I'm going to focus on those that are willing. Those that aren't, those that want to get grumpy, those that want to complain, those that want to stop the process, just going to ignore you. Because I got a group of people here that are willing to do this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Look at that phrase. If you want to be a willing unknown, you have to have faith. And if you take an honest assessment of faith, the truth is we have a lot more faith in what we have than what we hope for. See, hope is about the future. And we don't do well with things that are not seen. Isn't that part of the definition? The conviction of things not seen. We read it, but this is not the way we live our lives. And so we have a dilemma. The church is called to live by faith, which means we are creatures of hope, which means we are future creatures. It means that we make choices that create our future. And if you want to live in a hopeful future, you cannot live in fear of the unknown. And too many people today are stuck in the past and the present because of the unknowns of the future. And this explains a lot of our misery, doesn't it? I mean, I hear things like this all the time. I heard it when I was younger. I still hear today. Take a dating situation. Girl's sitting around with her other girlfriends, and she's talking about her boyfriend, her fiance, that she's going to marry, hopefully, and she says things like this. You know, he is such a jerk. He is so insensitive. He never calls me. And the girlfriends are like, well, why don't you break up with him? And she says, oh, I can't do that. I love him, and I, I know I can change him. <laughs> and then she says something like this. He's not what I hope for but he's what I have. 
And I have to hope that I can make him into what I hope for. See, they don't have faith. They're focused on their present about what they have. Early in my ministry, I had one of those early morning calls. And that's when you still had a phone. Cell phones didn't exist. 1 a.m. Sunday morning. Have you ever noticed the world breaks down usually 1 a.m. Sunday mornings? Or really late Saturday night? But back then, I thought I was that important that I had to go running. Okay? I had to fix the situation. Police refused to come out. There's a domestic dispute, but here comes Super Pastor. Okay? (laughs) I mean, I got to tell you now, I've gotten over that. So if you call me at 1 a.m., No, I'll say I'll see you at 6 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Door was open. I go walking in. Ray has his wife by the hair, yelling obscenities, knife to her throat. He sees me. He says, oh, hi, pastor. (laughs) Let's her go, puts the knife away, invites me to come in and sit and talk. Now, I got to tell you. I haven't quite seen that before. So I'm still sitting there saying, what did I just witness? He goes off to bed and I talked to Kim, his wife. And um, I remember asking Kim, why do you stay? Here was her answer. He is better than having no one. And if I left, then I would be alone. She could not believe that God would have something better, so she chose to live in the present. See, most people have more confidence in what they have than what they can hope for. And as Christians, we are future orientation because hope only exists in the future. It does not exist in the past. If it exists in the past, then it's regrets, not hope. And we are future creatures that create alternative futures. It's called transformation. It's called we don't have to be enslaved by sin. It's called we don't have to worry over what we think we have or do not have. Death does not frighten us. We have value. We are loved. So we follow Jesus. And we follow Jesus and we act like our life depends on it because it does. But here's the problem. We have no idea if our work as a leader will pay off in this present world. And that bothers our egos. Now, I don't know about you, but I I love stories of heroes. And have you noticed, though, even though we watch one after another after another, they're all the same. You have this character. They do something. They look like a fool. They're rejected. In the end, what happens? They triumph, and everyone says, yay, our hero. Jesus bids us come and die, and we may never be validated in this world for that. So ask yourself under the influence of truth serum. (laughs) Am I willing to do the work of God even if I am the one who is the willing unknown? Even though my name doesn't get on the list. Yeah, I got chosen by lots, but I willingly went. Yeah, I volunteered and I willingly went, but you know what? Nobody remembers me. I read the verse in Hebrews 11, and if you read down through, we have these list of names. All all these people of faith, and name after name after name after name, they're listed. But do you ever keep reading, and here's what it says. In verse 36 of Hebrews 11. Others, they're the willing unknowns. 
suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Others, the willing unknown, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And I love this next phrase, of whom the world was not worthy. That's God's assessment. That was nobody else's. We have no lists. We don't know who they are. Wandering in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith. Who commended them? God did. I mean, we all know it's going to work in the end. We all know we're going to see Jesus and then it's going to be yay. But think about Christmas and Easter and our celebrations. Think about how he was born and then he died and rose again from the grave and we celebrate that. But you know what we forget? 11 out of 12 of his disciples were martyred. They died for the cause. And so I asked the question this morning, who is ready? Who's ready to take a stand? For every Nelson Mandela who finally got out of prison, who stood against injustice, there are millions who died in prison that will never, ever know who they are. How many people... No Dr. Mordecai Ham. If you study history, you realize he's one of those old tent revival preachers. And a few of you might know who he is only because one of his converts turned 99 years old this past week. He was the person who led Billy Graham to the Lord. Everybody knows Billy Graham. But Dr. Mordecai Ham was one of those willing unknown. So who's in? Who's willing to be the one of the unknowns who walks into a future that is written as they take one step at a time? If you spend any time with the recovery minister here at GBC, what you realize is they always talk about one day at a time. That's what it means to walk by faith. They don't know what their future is going to hold. They don't know what the next day is going to hold. And we as Christians... Walk by faith one day at a time. And God will take you to places you never imagined being. And will use you in ways that you never thought possible. And you may never ever get any recognition for it. You know what we fail to realize. Whenever I sit with the recovery people is that we're all in recovery. Amen. (laughs) You know where we're in recovery from? We're in recovery from ourselves. Here's what I discovered over 39 years of ministry. There's two kinds of people. They vacillate between two extremes. One side says, you know, I have nothing to give. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so they write themselves out of circumstances and situations. And they have all these reasons like, well, nobody ever asked me to. I mean, God asked you to. I mean, what more of an ask you need? Then the other extreme is, we really think we're better than we really are. (laughs) And so one group says, hey, look at me. Another group says, hey, look at our great God. But see, humility never accepts either premise. One that writes ourselves out or another one that writes ourselves in saying, you know, if if this church would only listen to me, it'd really go to places. 
See, humility focuses on Jesus. He's the author and finisher of faith. And faith is something that we do not know yet, so we take one day at a time. Amen? Let's go back to the groups of people. They were the leaders. Early adopters. They led by example. They saw what needed to be done. They're the first to show up. And the need is for leaders who are what I call first change people. I do this because it's the right thing to do. And it's what the Lord commands. So they looked at Jerusalem and said, hey, people, we need them to live in Jerusalem. I'm going, follow me. Second group, those chosen by lots. Now, these people were willing if God called them. And the calling was very specific. And they were willing if chosen. But this violates our sense of security and fairness, doesn't it? It's like, I don't know if I like the lottery system because it's too random. I mean, after all, Russians might have hacked into it. I guess they didn't have Russians back then. Sorry about that. Bad preacher. Just seen if you're awake. Maybe it's the call of Dan's that hacked into the lots. I don't know. Then there was those that volunteered. And I got to tell you, here's this group of people that wasn't part of the leadership. They weren't part of casting a lot. They looked at their leaders and said, listen, sign me up. But we have a difficult time with faith when it violates our sense of the present, when it does not spell out the details, when it violates our sense of fairness, justice, and outcomes. We want to know the outcome before we go into it because we want to be ready. I got to tell you, back in this day, walking into the city, they had no idea what was going to happen. They're walking away from the security, from the protection. They're walking back into a literally a garbage dump that existed for 160 years. Talk about cleanup. But faith requires us to step into the unknown. Three Jewish captives. The king who got a little arrogant, built a huge statue to himself and wants everybody to bow down to it. And these three Jewish young men, and it's funny, we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Do you realize that's their Babylonian idol names? You want to find out what their other name is? Read it. Daniel chapter 1. They'll tell you what their Jewish names were. I'm not going to tell you this morning. I want you to read the Bible. (laughs) Create curiosity. Anyway... Under the threat of being burned in the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, I'm going to give you guys one chance. When the horns blow, you bow down. I'm not going to toss you in this place. Here's what they said. I I love this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, don't even bother getting the trumpets out. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then they say this, and it almost sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. It's a position of faith. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And they said, listen, we're not going to bow down. That's our choice. It's going to create a future for us. We know we're going to get tossed in this place. We know on one hand, God can deliver us. We know on the other hand, he might not. But to us, it doesn't matter because that's the faith that we have in our God. How many people know the name of this person? Shama. We'll put it on the screen so you can spell it. Anybody hear this guy? Oh, you need to read 2 Samuel chapter 23. Anybody hear of David? 
Okay, we all know David. You know, what we forget is that David had three mighty warriors that stood with him. And in 2 Samuel 23, it talks about these three unique individuals who come alongside David. And I love this story because I love stories. But each story served as a resume for their leadership. And David could not have done what David had done if it wasn't for these three mighty warriors. But here's this story. Philistines banded together in a place called Lehi. There was a field full of lentils. And picture this scene. Philistines were a people of Goliath, fierce warriors by nature. They gathered at the edge of the field. The Israel armies intimidated. And what do they do? They run. And they run as fast as they can. They run in fear. And you think about that because they're making a choice. Now, what's the Philistine army going to do when they run? They're going to run after them. I mean, somewhere, someplace, they're going to have to stand and fight the battle. But they're saying, not today. So they run. Just the sight of the Philistines. They abandon their posts and they run for their lives. And again, the running doesn't change the fact that the Philistines were going to come after them. There was a war, so it solved nothing. Isn't that true about our lives? Eventually the thing we fear we're running from, we have to face someday. Then there's this guy by the name of Shammah, one of the three mighty warriors that stood with David. While Israel's running and the dust settles, there stands Shammah standing his ground. Now, we don't exactly know what happens next, but you kind of know they're the Philistine army and they see them running and the dust clears and they see one man standing there ready to fight. They're saying to themselves, okay, you know, who wants to go out there first? So they send a big warrior out and Shammah takes him out. They're saying, well, why don't we take three or four? Next time, he takes them out. Finally, the whole army comes after him and there's this fight that goes on and Shammah strikes them all down. Now, I don't know if he knew he would do that. But he says, you know what? Here's the line I draw on the sand. Now, people like Shama create a problem for the rest of us, don't they? Disrupts our narrative that we have in place about following Jesus. Even if he would have failed and gotten killed, it would have changed the story. But Shammah does by himself what the armies of Israel did not believe they could do together. And he returns to his people, battle-weary, covered in blood of his enemies. And you can imagine this camp when they see him walking in. I mean, nothing needs to be said. His presence, his very existence is an indictment on everyone who fled. And that tells us don't expect to be popular if you choose to rise above the status quo. Don't expect to be applauded when you choose mission over what seems expedient. Now, Shama's one of the guys I want to talk to when, you know, I finally get to that place where I can. Because I want to know what was going through his mind before, during, and after. I mean, I want to know why he stood probably in the middle of a death sentence. What this means is if you're going to live a life that's God created you to live if you're going to live to your full potential if you're going to live the kind of life that never settles for mediocrity you're going to have to choose to take a stand don't live for the applause of the people live for the applause of God 
you're going to have to be one of the willing unknowns. You're going to have to have the kind of spirit that says, you know what? It really doesn't matter who remembers and who doesn't. I'm going to do it because God calls me to go take on the gates of hell and to rescue somebody. Here's what I do know. There's a point in time we have to ask ourselves, is this worth fighting for? Is this worth dying for? Is this where I take my stand? Is this the life I've chosen? There's a place in time we have to say, I will not run. I will not let fear move me. I will die fighting for the cause rather than exist running from it. That I'll take the challenge regardless of how it will end in this world. And so we have two choices. We can fight the future or we can fight for the future. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close. I want to pray for you. Father God, we read stories like Shamus and we say, well, that's the exception, not the rule. Then we read stories about Hebrews 11, about how they went through such great stress, prison, being killed and martyred, being destitute. And we say, well, we want to follow you, but not like that. I pray for our mission here at GBC. I pray for our vision. I pray for us as a people, Lord, that we learn to follow you regardless of what that means. We have to let go of certain things and we have to embrace others. But we know there are people that desperately need to see you. And it's why you left the church. You didn't leave it so we can form a comfortable social club that just we get together with our family and friends. No, we we engage in people who somehow have lost hope, who don't see hope who are broken by the evil of this world, who are enslaved by the prince of this world. And I pray, Lord, that as we go on these raiding parties behind hell's gates, that you give us the wisdom that we need and that we celebrate those who see you. I thank you for stories like Nehemiah because while it's really uncomfortable, I know it pushes me to a place where I haven't been. May that be for us as a congregation, Lord. We thank you for the privilege we have to worship you this morning, God, through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you for how you've transformed lives among us. And it's just so cool to watch that. But lead us, Lord. And when we fall, may we get back up. And when the dust settles, may we see people declare that it had to be of God because there's no way that anyone could have pulled this off. To your glory, Lord, not ours. In your name we pray, and everyone said, amen.